Astonishing Legends would like to thank Best Fiends, Health IQ, Native, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. On September 30th, 1955, James Dean was killed, and his passenger and one other motorist seriously injured when his 1955 Porsche 550 Spider had an offset head-on collision with a 1950 Ford Custom Tudor. That night confirmed what many who met him had known for a while. James Dean seemed to have a dark cloud hanging over him. No doubt, people like James Dean have moved throughout various cultures of human history since the dawn of humanity. People who seem to have more charisma, charm, and whatever counts for good looks than they know what to do with. But they have something else too. Some kind of energy or aura around them that those who can sense, do sense, and sense strongly. And sometimes that aura is best described as overwhelmingly dark. What is it about those people that makes them so different from the rest of us? We may never know the answer to that, but other questions remain in the case of this particular story. Is it possible for inanimate objects to inherit a state of mind or personal energy from the people who own them? Does that even make sense? Is it possible for a car to be cursed? Of course, we can all remember Stephen King's story, Christine, but that was a work of fiction. What of curses in reality, especially curses that are attached to some poor dead soul's former possessions? If all of the stories are to be believed, a garage storing the car will succumb to a mysterious fire, scorching the wreckage of the Porsche. Salvaged mechanical parts from the car would lead to the death of at least one other man, and remaining portions of its body would maim nearly a dozen people. After that, little bastard seemingly vanished from the face of the earth. How much of all of this should we believe? Let's find out. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. If a man can bridge the gap between life and death, if he could live on after he's dead, then maybe he was a great man, James Dean. Join us tonight for the last part of our series on the death of James Dean and the infamous car that drove him to it, Little Bastard. And we're back. That we are, folks. Uh, we just keep coming back. We have a couple of very important holiday announcements to make this week. The first one is about some limited edition holiday merchandise that's going to be available for pre-order in our store from Black Friday through Cyber Monday. Yes, folks, this is a special time for special stuff for that special time of year. So if you're looking for something for that special legender in your life... There is no more special time to jump on it. Could you stop saying special so much? <laughs> uh, this is all very special, just like your own sweet self. Uh, Two, <laughs> you are the one who writes all this cold open and housekeeping stuff, so uh, I, yes. just, I just read it. Uh, just to explain what pre-order means, because some people, I think, maybe didn't quite understand that at Halloween, that means that you'll be able to go to the store and purchase items that we're standing by to produce. We will make enough to fulfill all of the orders we get by midnight 
U.S. Eastern Time on Cyber Monday when we take everything down. All that stuff will then start getting produced and shipped out within the next few weeks so you have it in time for the holidays. Is it, th is it that complicated? All right. Yeah, it is. I know. So it took me a while to understand it. The, the merch it's a lot of timing issues me. here. Yeah. yeah. But basically the point is go to astonishinglegends.com and find our store on Black Friday and feast your eyes on all these special items available for special pre-order. But wait, there's more. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Come on, just get into the get into the holiday advertising spirit. Well, let's get a little Christmas music going. So I may have overused the word special there a minute ago, much more than it needed to be, but we really do have something legitimately special in mind for the 2019 holiday season. However, we need your help. That's right. Forrest has convinced me <laughs> that we should air an episode we did a few years ago that I seem to remember we decided wouldn't ever see the light of day. Well, the only thing I can say is that this never-before-aired, unedited, lost Christmas episode special is so mysterious and uh, unknown. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I don't even remember it. I have, I have no idea that we did it or where it is or, or how it came to be or where it resides now. Uh, frankly, it was a bit of a disaster and not as refined as I like to think we are these days. But nevertheless, mm. it is something for the whole family. And we don't want to give too much away. But like Forrest mentioned, there's a way for you to help us out and be a part of it. All you need to do is record a holiday greeting send it to us, and your greeting could be a part of our holiday special for the never-before-aired, unedited, lost Christmas episode. I think they got it. Oh, All right, okay. here are the rules. Record an audio message under five seconds. We want to include as many seasons greetings as we can, so under five seconds is a must. Be sincere, funny is fine too, and keep it clean. It could be any holiday greeting you want to whoever or whomever you want or for whatever reason you want. Just keep it under five seconds. No video, please. Just audio. And clean. I'm just letting you know we're very aware of the oh. names that sound like other things if you catch my drift, <laughs> so don't even try that. Well, the easiest way to do this is to visit astonishinglegends.com slash holiday dash messages. And I'm guessing, Scott, that dash is a hyphen? That's correct. There's a link in our show notes for this episode, of course, and there are full instructions on there what to do and where to email it to. Please remember to put the word holiday in the subject line. Yes, the instructions are all right there on that webpage. So again, that's astonishinglegends.com slash holiday dash messages. And to Forest Point, that's an actual dash, a hyphen between the word holiday and messages. But go there and it will tell you exactly what to do, what kinds of audio files we can accept and where to send them. And if you're too busy to get to that page, the shorthand is that you can email an MP3, MP4, AIF, WAVE, W-A-V, or QuickTime file to Astonishing segues, A L at gmail.com. Who, who chose that email address? Uh, we did a long time insane. ago, and we're stuck with it now. It's the one that Sarah oh checks, God. our editor. Oh, so goodness. that's just what we got. All right. Do, so. Well, <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Astonishing, and then the word S E G U E S, then the letters A L. All one word. Astonishing segues, A L at gmail.com. And that is the same address we do use for segues, which is why you need to put the word holiday in the subject line so we can tell the difference. So if you would like to be a part of, yes, go on, do it. The never before aired, unedited lost Christmas episode. Send us your holiday well wishes, any holiday well wishes under five seconds to astonishing segues, al at gmail.com with holiday, the word holiday 
in the subject line before midnight Eastern of November 28th. Yes, that's uh, Thanksgiving for those of you in the United States, November 28th, so midnight Eastern that time. Or you can just visit astonishinglegends.com slash holiday dash messages for complete instructions. If you can't remember this URL because you're on the subway, yes, I'm talking to you, Sam, you can also find it under the contact drop-down menu on our homepage. We look forward to your participation and sorry for all the complicated instructions. All right, well, that's the end of tonight's episode. <laughs> Join us next time. Are we, are we, did we run out of time, uh, we even for us? Did. We probably did. Oh my goodness. Yeah. All right, well, where were we? All right, so when we wrapped up part one of this series, we were at the part of the story where the accident actually occurred. And that accident is obviously the center of the universe for this legend. And I want to come back to the accident itself for a minute because the show ended with that. There's a few more details to share about that before we move on from it, which we'll be doing in tonight's episode. The first thing to understand is the severity of it. Dean did suffer a broken neck in that crash, and the location of the crash was actually so remote that the closest hospital was over a half hour away in Paso Robles, where Dean and Bill Hickman and Sandy Roth had all agreed that they were going to stop for dinner, but they never got to. There were no life flight helicopters back then, so it would take however long for an ambulance to get to the accident, even if it wasn't coming from the hospital, it's probably coming from pretty far away in the first place, and then another half hour to get the, I think it was 28 miles back to Paso Robles. And Dean was so severely injured, and so was Rolf, but Rolf was going to be okay. Dean was in a bad way. So even if he had gotten into the ambulance alive with those injuries, it was unlikely that he would make the 30-minute drive back to the hospital. And in fact, he was pronounced dead on arrival. He was only 24 years old. His passenger, mechanic Rolf Wetherick, who we have talked about before, was thrown six feet from the car. He had a fractured jaw in two places, I believe, but don't quote me on that, and several other injuries, including some to his hip. Oddly, in one of the pictures of the crash, which you can find easily online, you can see a gurney next to Little Bastard. And if you look carefully, you have to look close because you don't notice it at first. Down on the ground, you can actually see Rolf. You can see his hairline, and he's laying on the ground on his stomach and pushing his head and shoulders up with his arms fully outstretched, almost like you're doing a push-up, but your pelvis is still on the ground. It's kind of a strange position. Whatever happened, he's laying there on the ground on the driver's side of the spider. And Dean, whom you cannot see in those images, is theoretically more on the passenger side, unless he's already been removed, which I don't know. But he was pushed over to the passenger side by the impact, which was on his side of the car. We know the steering wheel was now on the passenger side. It was pushed all the way over. And we know that Dean's foot was caught between the pedals, It's hard to know exactly what happened, but it's likely that when the car was somersaulting, he might have been ejected too if his foot hadn't been caught between the pedals. And the impact from Turnip Seeds Ford may have pushed Dean to the passenger side, subsequently forcing Rolf completely out of the car as it was tumbling through the air, which is how he probably wound up on the ground on the driver's side of the car because they just, all that momentum and the physics of it all, as it was somersaulting, all that stuff was just flying through the air until it got to the opposite side of the road there. Let's talk a little bit about the young man who hit them. His name was Donald Gene Turnipseed. He was a Navy veteran at the young age of 23. He'd already been in the Navy for, I think, two years. And he was traveling to his home for the weekend from Cal Poly Pomona, where he was in school. Now, some sources say he broke his nose in the crash. Others say his injuries were even less serious than that. Whatever the case, when the accident was over, he was sobbing, and once he realized that it was his fault, he was just saying over and over, I didn't see him, I swear, I swear, I didn't see him. 
And later he would amend that to say he hadn't seen him, quote, until it was too late. He was ultimately found not at fault, and one of the things that they attributed the accident to was the sun being low in the sky. And that gets mentioned all the time, but that's confused me personally because the sun actually would have been behind turnip seed. It would have been in Dean's eyes. So I'm not sure how that affects, you know, unless it was in the rearview mirror or something. Well, no, you have to consider, though, the sun can affect you being very low in two ways, either shining directly into your eyes, and then things can be obscured from your sight, but also... When the sun is at your back and very low, there's a lot of glare off yeah. of surfaces. That's true. And That's true. I was actually in a very minor fender bender where the sun was low, but it was in the morning coming up and it was hard to see. And so I know that can be a factor. So you don't really know unless you're the person in the car and-, and Yeah, and I'm you know, not, in, by in the way, conditions. I no, wasn't I know. It, trying to yeah. cast aspersions on the story, but it's- Right. The accident happened the other way around. Had Turnips had been driving west and Dean east- then I could see the sun being directly in Dean's eyes, but not necessarily directly either because where it sets on the horizon moves as it does for the whole planet over yeah. the year. So I'm not sure exactly where it was setting, but I do know that it was right. in front of Dean if it was going down. So Well, one thing I've noticed here being in the lower parallels, you could say, for North America is that in the wintertime, the sun is always very low in the sky. So that's a factor in the winter, I know. And this would have been in the fall, in September. Yeah. Well, there's one other thing I want to mention here before we get going with some other strange coincidences. For a bad offset head-on crash, it's not... I mean, it, it was pretty mangled and horrible. The car was, certainly. But for an open-top car, a fair-weather car, as you would call it, the vehicle occupants were not as mangled as I would expect them to be. Not in other cases like you may have heard of with Jane Mansfield or yeah. the unfortunate young woman who took her dad's Porsche for a joyride to get away and she crashed into a state inspection stop point into a parked vehicle there. And that yeah. was horrific. Yeah. And Dean's neck was broken, but really I would have expected those two occupants in the Spider to be much more horribly damaged and maybe less so for Gene Turnipsey because he's in a really heavy car. Yeah, that car is made a out of tank. solid American steel. I yeah. was looking at those today online, and they're just huge old steel monsters. I found one for sale that was in mint condition for twenty one thousand yeah. dollars. By the way, yeah. Uh, the other thing about turnip seeds that was interesting was that he had it painted, it had a, like a black and white paint scheme, and I guess some mm -hmm. people made fun of him for it looking kind of like a police car, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> but yeah, the car that I had in high school that was bequeathed to me was a forty six Ford, and yeah, I did a little body work on that. I took the door panels off, and I noticed that there is a large circular piece of Oh, one sixteenth inch steel, it seemed like maybe spot welded into the side of the door. And I couldn't think of any reason it would be there other than for reinforcement. That thing is, it's like a submarine, really. Yeah. And and it's just huge. It's very heavy. And Dean's car, again, I made this point in part one, but if you look at it, it's very low profile. Yes. A very small car, really just wide enough for two people sitting very close together, nothing in between them. And it's one of those cars that some of my grandfather's friends would say, you can stamp out your cigarette just by reaching out <laughs> up yes. the top onto the ground. You're very low. So that also could be a factor in turnip seed not seeing him, just being very low to the ground, low profile. But again, I was surprised that for an open top car being flipped, it wasn't more horrible than it was. Yeah, when you think about it, this car was actually just three inches over three feet tall from the ground mm. to the top of the highest point, which was probably the windshield. 
So it was 40 inches, which is, if you try to think about how low that is, and we don't want to talk about cars too much because I know we're losing people, yeah. but the Ford GT40, <laughs> it's called the GT40 because it was 40 inches tall as well. That's when you think about how low this car is and you think about what turnip seed, that's probably barely coming up to the top of his grill on his mm-hmm. car and it's coming barreling at him. There is some dispute over the speed, but we'll we'll come to that a little bit later on in this episode. There is something that struck me as we were going through this research as really fascinating about the story. And it, it might be nothing. It's that whole, what's the thing about the clock? You look at 11.11, you get obsessed with it, and then you just keep seeing it over and over. Well, yes, but there may be more to that. Right. Paranormal. Well, that's why I love bringing think. that up with you, because I like that's yeah. what I want to hear right now, because this is where I'm about to go is kind of off the deep end on the- numerology thing but it's pretty deep for you andy deep andy for you yeah because you you read it i guess and as i said all things emanate from that crash and james dean's death the more you look into all of it the more it seemed like the crash i I mean to me anyway was an inevitability like something that simply could not and would not be stopped in all the various timelines if you believe in multiverses i feel like that crash was happening in every single one of them and for this legend All time emanates both forwards and backwards from that night on Friday, September 30th, 1955, which brings me to this observation, the fives. I call this the fives. There were a lot of fives in this story. It took place in 1955. Jimmy was driving a 1955 Porsche 550 Spider, and the vehicle identification number for that car was 550 0055. It was the 55th one out of 90 built. So 5500055. That's actually a palindrome, meaning it's the same thing forwards as it is backwards, like the word race car. This also strikes me as odd because when it comes to the 550 Spider, I remember something my great grandfather used to say when he was still alive about things that look like that car does, which was you can't tell if it's coming or going. And that's something that I think about when you look at it. It it looks the same from the front as it does from the back, especially if you're an older person. Little Bastard's design is, is almost symmetrical in its nature. And that unusual look may have contributed to the accident itself. It may have been part of the reason that and the sun, as we talked about earlier, it may have been part of the reason Donald Gene Turnipseed couldn't identify it as something he should avoid when he turned across its path all those years ago. Now, numerology is a polarizing concept. I know that. But you know us. We look at everything. I did a brief dive as we were preparing this outline on the number five, and I found similar observations about it across a number of websites devoted to numerology. Five indicates someone full of energy, independent, adaptive, and listen to this, a refusal to conform literally a rebel without a cause. But that was just a movie script, right? A part that Dean played. Well, you've heard about him, so maybe not so much. Five is also the number of humanity and noted for independence, rebellion, and here we go again, a daredevil nature. Five also has an ability to go with the flow of change at a moment's notice, but this also makes it hard to make a commitment to something stable. So I called that information from several different sources, but this particular statement jumped out at me from a website called thesecretofthetarot.com. It refers to five as a her because five is a combination of masculine and feminine energy that tips the scales slightly more feminine with almost a tomboyish nature. But listen to this quote from that website. While her adventurous nature can be refreshing, it can bring about many instances of irresponsible, albeit independent action. The number five is all about random and dynamic energy. And in order for her to become successful in this lifetime, she must learn to channel her energy and discipline herself in her endeavors. 
So I know, <laughs> know a lot of our audience is going to think that's all a lot of hooey, but to me, it's interesting. The 1955, the VIN number, the fact that it was a 550 and it was the 55th one built, that's a lot of fives. So I don't know, Forrest, are you going to leave my two It's really woo-woo for you. I'll say that. I'll say that. Not so much. I mean, you are interested. We had a friend of ours do workups of our numbers. Yes. And yeah, there's a lot of very significant descriptions in the workup, I would say. Things that really ring true, right? I know. And I need to go back to it. I, I started to look at it and then I got kind of freaked out and I haven't been back. Yeah. That was like six months ago. She's like waiting to hear from me. So I right. need to, well, anything I need that to take a further look freaks at you out that much, at least personally, it, when it kind of hits home, it's an interesting response because it's guttural, at least for you. When you're looking at it rationally, you wonder like, well, how can that make any yeah. difference? Like, you know, and then you read the report. It's like, well, no, that's, that's pretty close. So here, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, there's some Something that keeps coming up. I don't know if it has any meaning, but like I said, if it's a lot like it is here, you do wonder about it. I'm Becca in Fort Worth, Texas, and when I'm not catching up on old episodes of Astonishing Legends, I'm listening to new episodes of Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to Astonishing Legends. Well, here's another thing I wanted to point out that I actually didn't think about till after we recorded part one, because we said it ourselves and we played that story. But this occurred to me, I think we finished that at like one in the morning or whatever. And I remember laying in bed thinking about this. This is something I'm surprised that nobody else has mentioned, at least I haven't seen it anywhere else. And it's about Alec Guinness's story of predicting Dean's death. And everyone references that story. We even played it for you verbatim in part one. And in it, he talks about how he saw Dean on a Thursday night. I bumped into him in Hollywood outside a restaurant, and he told him he would be dead in a week by next Thursday. He wasn't actually dead by next Thursday. That Thursday would have been September 29th of 1955. He died on September 30th, the following day. The 29th was the night he went out with Bill Hickman, was driving up and down the 101 and almost got the speeding ticket, and the fog came in. He very easily could have died that night. But he didn't. He died on Friday, September 30th. It's still spooky, but it's not quite right, which means that Sir Guinness either had his story wrong or he had the story right, but his prediction was wrong, albeit only by a day. No doubt predicting the death of someone you just met you're, has You're going to get on Obi-Wan's case for being I think off it's by a day? No! <laughs> No, I'm just saying he's he's on TV. He's like he was dead by that next Thursday. Actually, oh he wasn't. My just, you know, oh my we, that's what we do. It's we just, go, we 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 track it all that's down. That's pretty amazing. Still, if you said you're going to be dead within a week, like, all right, I was off by twelve hours. I'm like, not you know, saying it gonna, isn't. <laughs> it's like, well, no, but he's he's just so sure of himself. Well, he's on that oh, BBC on. show. He's like, you'll be dead by next. And sure enough, he was. And well, it's like, no, he wasn't. He oh was my goodness, you're, you're like those debunkers. You were like those debunkers that said. Well, actually, it was 30 I'm minutes not... <laughs> later, so, you know, it's totally wrong. Just throw yeah, the whole thing worst out. Worst episode yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> worst prediction <laughs> but, of death No, the ever. idea, though, um... if it's on record and <laughs> it is for him, I suppose, that's pretty stunning. And for what I know about people who do have psychic sights, visions, ability, it's not 100% all the time. You're off by a little bit. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I've learned that since we started the show, too. And it, and it goes back to Haddam writing that into the script in Mothman about you don't get all the right details, and sometimes you get things intentionally wrong. And and maybe that's part of the message. You never know. Yeah, so. you don't know where it's coming from. My point being only that a lot of people who would debunk this stuff will point to that, saying, like, well, there you go. It's 90% accurate, not 100. Yeah. You know, so it's it's totally false. Like, well, I well, don't know. Well, that's not what I'm saying pretty, at all. Pretty good. Yeah. I, by no, the I way, know. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he was off by a day. 
That's all. Yeah, you know, you're pointing out that uh, it's a slight discrepancy, but still, like you say, very spooky. Yes, very spooky. All right. Well, the next thing I want to talk about is a little bit of the aftermath associated with the people in Dean's life when he died. And there's something that we wanted to talk about related to Mila Nurmi from before he died as well. This is pretty interesting. Uh, We told you how Dean had struck a chord with a lot of people in his brief life, both personally and on the silver screen. But in a lot of ways, it seemed like his deepest connection was the first really strong one that he had with Mila Nurmi or Vampira. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about the nature of their relationship, whether or not it was intimate, platonic, or something even harder to define. As we said in part one, in many ways, they seem like two sides of the same coin, but there's something we haven't talked about yet. I'm going to point to a blog entitled, this is the best blog name ever, drunkensevereredhead.blogspot.com for this particular tidbit. I don't think it's been updated in a while, but it does have a, a lot of interesting stuff on it. There's a link to this post in our show notes, but this is from a blog entry there posted by Maxwell Cheney, who I gather runs or ran the blog. Could also be Cheney. Could be Cheney. I said Cheney because mm-hmm. it's spelled the same way as Dick Cheney, but maybe it's Cheney. But Dick Cheney's name is actually pronounced Cheney. Oh, everybody says it wrong. Okay. I know. It is one of those things. No, I read it. I read an article where his wife said, you know, everybody says it that way, but it's actually Cheney. Well, there you go. Interesting. And Cheney is actually a small town south of Spokane, up near where those parts are vaguely where I'm from. Yeah. where are you from? Around that area. Yes. Around that area. That would be on the Washington side. Yeah. Not too far from the border of Northern Idaho there. But it's a nice little town, but that's how you pronounce it. Wow. And here we are, uh, five years in. That's the most specific you've ever been about your. Yeah, uh... it's not very specific, but I no. Just it, if you if you're from the area there, eastern Washington, you you've heard of it. And I'm just trying to head off the 14 or 15 emails we're going to get about the. Oh, you're always of heading Cheney. off emails. Yes, yes I know. <laughs> well, they never stop. That's the one. That is the biggest thing that we get emails about. It's always pronunciation. We said so something wrong. Yes. Well, yeah. In this blog entry that I was trying to bring up about 20 minutes ago before we went on that tangent, mm-hmm. Max, who created it shares scans of a 50s trashy tabloid called Whisper. Uh, these are pretty amazing scans. I guess they were provided to him by a friend of the blog at the time, probably not his real name, but maybe Fritz de Spien. Uh, no, it's it, well, you say it. Fritz de Spine. Good. And you know what that means? Fritz the Spider. Oh. Not S P Y D E R, but yes, that's German for Fritz the Spider. See, this is why I keep you around. Yeah. Well, the article was entitled James Dean's Black Madonna, the most chilling and tragic love story in Hollywood history. And it was written by Sam Schaefer. This was back in 1956. Now, in this article, there's a lot of salacious and probably 90 to 95% made up details because it is a tabloid, even before they got as. I would say that they're probably downright respectable now compared to how they were in the 50s. But yeah, yeah, I, I think there was probably a lot of made-up details about Mila and Dean's relationship, but it's hard to know. The tabloid claims that Nermi practiced black magic and that someone actually sent a photo of Nermi as Vampira seated next to an open grave to Dean, and it was signed by her. Yeah, I believe the story, though, was that she, Mila Nermi, told a mutual friend of her and James Dean, that she sent the photo to James Dean. Right. I think that that was probably implied, but I do know that he received it, and it was autographed by her as Vampira, and it had a message on it, and it said she was seated next to an open grave in her Vampira getup. It's a pretty cool picture, actually, but so there's this open grave, and it says, darling, come join me. So... 
That's, uh, I guess, a spooky message there. But Or maybe it's just a joke between friends. The article goes on to state that Vampira lived in a small house on Larrabee Street in Hollywood, which I know exactly where that is. She had a mm-hmm. black bed. It was painted black with black sheets. And the walls were, I guess, covered with grotesque designs and objects that one might associate with black magic. It adds the following, quote, Stuck on one wall with a small golden dagger were some sections cut out of a magazine photograph. The sections showed nothing more than the eyes and ears of a young man. Around 7 p.m. on this particular evening in question in the article, the dagger suddenly fell to the floor. It goes on to say that Nermi ignored the dagger as it fell. At that very moment, Dean was dying in Little Bastard, 180 miles to the north. It continues pointing out that Dean slighted Nermi at some party, which I will say that Warren Newton Beath made a reference to in his book. And in this article, it said that Dean was joking around about a time in their relationship where they had been intimate. And he made some kind of joke that sort of put her down, at which point she replied putting him down about the nature of that intimacy. And she also got mad and she was allegedly overheard saying, James Dean is going to die soon in front of several people that night. Not too long after that, She supposedly set up an altar of sorts dedicated to Dean in her home, and the magazine even features a photo of the actual altar, or so it claims. Now, and when you look at it, it does look like it could be an actual period correct photo from her house, and I, but I don't know how you would get that picture. One must remember the source in these cases, but there is a picture there. And on this altar, what you see is you see Nermi dressed up as Vampira, scowling. And then there's a picture of Jimmy in the middle, which was autographed by him. And there's also a printout of a graphic that it's very iconographic looking. It says, ye must be born again, which is John chapter 3, verse 7. There are two candles in front of it and a candlestick as well. It turns out that the photo that was held to the wall by the golden dagger of the young man's eyes and ears was actually put there by Dean himself. He went over there and put it there. I think it was maybe the night that they had the spat at the party maybe, or Uh, it it was earlier, but he was the one that cut it out and stuck it to her wall. I I think kind of as a prank or kind of as a joke. They they had a very playful relationship, it seemed like to me. So the article said that it was James, Dean, and some friends who had gone over to her house to visit. She wasn't there, but the door was open. So they walked in and they found another photo play tabloid magazine with him in it and he cut himself out or he cut his eyes out and ears and he stuck them on the walls as a joke to her right and uh, i think it may have been even his little golden dagger knife or he found one and he that's what he stuck it to the wall with so it was him that did it right. yeah but we're, weirdly if that is true it would be a a spooky paranormal thing where the the dagger falls the moment that he's in the crash yeah so how much of this is true i don't know it is pretty creepy He may never have seen the altar that she made, but another friend did see it and I guess asked her why it was there. And she reportedly told that friend, quote, because I'm a witch, end quote. Mm. The tabloid goes on to say that Dean had left Nermi or had stopped seeing her or dating her or whatever for Ursula Andress. And maybe he had. But again, Warren Newton Beeth also said that Dean was simply spending a ton of time with Bill Hickman learning how to race and drive the spider, and implied that there were more issues about him no longer hanging out with his friends, including Myla, as a result of that. So it's hard to know, but of course the tabloid would cast Nermi as a woman, or more importantly, a witch scorned. There are more salacious details in the article, but one of the most prominent ones is the story that Vampira called a mutual friend of hers and Dean's on the afternoon of the 27th, 
And she told this friend that Jimmy had called her to, quote, ask if she'd light the candles at his funeral. So that was the 27th, by the way. That would be four days before he died. Now, finally, the only fact in it that I was personally surprised to learn was that the day that James Dean was buried in his hometown of Fairmount, Indiana, October 8th, 1955, was apparently the very same day ABC officially terminated Nermi's contract as Vampira after she had refused to sell them the rights to her character at a wholly unfair price. If that is true, that is an amazingly bizarre confluence of events for sure. Aha, there you go. That's the old trope of you get your hex or your wish granted or your spell is granted, but you pay a price for it. Yeah, wow. Mm. Well, we do know that contract was terminated. I, I wouldn't know where to begin, at least right now. I, I'm sure the ARC could maybe figure it out. What day, oh, what day you mean? Yeah, what day it actually yeah. was terminated, but if the tabloid's right, or they could have made that up. It, it is a freaky observation, to be sure. Mm -hmm. So we got to take this whole story with a grain of salt, but here's what Warren Newton Beeth said about it in his book, The Death of James Dean, about this very same incident. Quote, Myla had her picture taken with Jimmy at the Bakersfield sports car races, but she had asked Frank Worth, the photographer, to destroy the photos, lest Jimmy think she was trying to trade on his success because her own star was on the wane. Jealousy led to misunderstanding and sniping. Quote, I do not date cartoons, Jimmy said to Hedda, when she linked him romantically with Vampira. Beeth doesn't talk about who Hedda was, but I'm pretty sure it would have been Hedda Hopper, who was a super famous gossip columnist at the time. Aha! You want to hear a strange, freaky, not that freaky, but a, a coincidence? About Hedda Hopper? Yeah, he's got to be talking about Hedda Hopper, the famous gossip columnist, who was a former actress herself. Well, in the movie, Rebel Without a Cause, the James Dean love interest is Natalie Wood. Right. And she plays the character Judy. Well, Judy's father is played by William Hopper, Hedda Hopper's son. Oh. And most people may know William Hopper. He was an actor himself and been in a bunch of stuff. He was also a World War II frogman. Oh, wow. And, but anyway, yeah, yeah, he was a actor himself, and most people probably know him as the investigator on Perry Mason. He was Perry Mason's oh, investigator. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. And he's been in a few other films. Most like, people that uh, are old, like we are, or older. <laughs> it's I'd in like reruns. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it when it aired. But my dad watches a lot of them. He's, he's yeah. seen them all like three or four times. But yeah, so that's an interesting little connection there. But that's the head of Hopper he's talking about. And she is a gossip columnist, but she had a pretty decent reputation for at least getting most of the story right. So who knows? I read, I think it was in the 40s that she had 35 million readers yeah, being syndicated or whatever. Yeah. Well, do you think that James Dean was talking about or making reference to the cartoon character from Charles Adams as Vampira? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think okay. he was sliding her for that. Right. So uh, continuing on with the quote from uh, Beeth's book, Myla sent Jimmy a card in which she invited him to join her in a grave. That's reference to what we said earlier from mm -hmm. the tabloid. The friendship endured, but it was never the same. The last time Myla saw Jimmy was 10 days before his death. He told her that he might have to get in touch with her to help him light the candle. So... That comes back around. That's Beeth corroborating what Whisper or parts of what Whisper had published, although I don't know, Beeth may have gotten his story from Whisper. Again, it was hard to find him, but that's from page 25 of the Kindle edition of his book, The Death of James Dean. So that comes back around to this idea that there might have been a curse of some kind or a hex maybe put on the Dean by Nermi if she was in yeah. fact a witch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if she was. I know that she was a genius at marketing, 
and right, maybe that's right. just some of the stuff she did to stay in the papers, especially with her show going off the air, trying to figure out what her next angle was. But it's an interesting idea. Well, you never know. I mean, I know it sounds far-fetched, and you could say, you know, the attitude of the 50s, especially the dominant one, the patriarchal one, is that anything kind of strange or spooky, and if you dress like a witch, like you're into witchcraft and black magic and all that, and nowadays, of course, those attitudes have changed, but you don't know. You don't really know what they were into. Did the hobby, did the practice lead to that character? Or was it all just an act? Much like Cassandra Peterson. I don't get any sense at all that she does anything kind of Elvira-ish in her free time. No. But it seemed like Myla Nurmi really did kind of live the part. Yeah. You know, she was fully invested in that and loved the the spooky angle on that. And you see that a lot nowadays where people are, are dabbling in the alternative religions. All right, so this brings us to the curse, which is one of the cruxes of part two of this series, or the final part of our series here on Little Bastard. And the curse is that question of whether or not something actually got stuck or attached to Jimmy Dean's 550 Spider. Did it hang on to that negative energy that all those actors saw hovering over him whenever they were hanging out with him? And that's a question that has persisted through the ages because a lot of people have heard these stories about this car being cursed. So let's look at that in more detail. The first story that I think is the most prominent one has to do with what I call the death race. And that was a race that took place on October 21st, 1955, when parts from James Dean's Porsche went out on the racetrack in two different cars at the exact same time on the same day. And this was the same race. It was the second running of the Pomona Road Races, and two doctors were there who were friends. They were racing that day, not together, but they were there at the same time. One of them, Dr. William F. Eshrich, had even raced against James Dean three times himself in the past. The other was a Dr. Troy McHenry, and he was a friend of Dr. Eshrich, and depending on who you believe, he had either borrowed some of the parts from James Dean's old car, or he had purchased them from Dr. Eshrich, who had come to own them after the accident. And these were mechanical parts, not the car body itself. So according to the legend, on that day, Dr. McHenry was just 15 minutes into this race in his car, which was powered by Little Bastard's Type 547 engine, when his car spun out, smashed into a tree, and killed him instantly. Dr. Eshrich, his friend, who was also on the track that day, in the very same race, was coming around a corner when a wheel came off of his car. The legend goes on to point out that his friend, Dr. William F. Eshrich, in the very same race, was driving his car using unspecified components also from Little Bastard when his car locked up, spun out, and rolled over, nearly killing him. Both these cars in that race. So in this one race, there was one death and one serious injury with two cars that were using components from Little Bastard. That's the legend, and that's one of the stories that's out there that you'll hear a lot. You won't be surprised to find out that this isn't exactly what actually happened. So the next question becomes, in Forrest, you and I run into this all the time, the next question becomes how much of this legend is reality, how much of it got worked into folklore, and is there any of it that's just made up from whole cloth? It turns out there actually is a lot of truth to what happened to those two guys on the track that day, and we're able to track a lot of it down but the truth is also very different from the legend. So we're going to go into a little bit of backstory and detail on this so you can understand the bigger picture of how this evolved into what we hear about Little Bastard today when you hear about the curse of James Dean's Portia. According to Portia historian Lee Raskin in his book, James Dean at Speed, 
the insurance company had unsurprisingly declared the spider a total loss after the accident and paid Dean's dad, Winton, fair market value for it before selling it through a junkyard to William F. Eshrich. This is what happens when a car is declared a total loss and they pay off the beneficiary of the policy, which in this case was Dean's dad. They then own the car, what's left of it, and they can do whatever they want with it. And in this case, it would make sense that they would take it to a junkyard and try to salvage it and see if they could get any kind of money back from the payout on their policy. Well, according to Raskin, it turns out that at the junkyard or salvage yard, the insurance company was able to broker a deal with Dr. William F. Eshrich. Eshrich was a wealthy surgeon. He wasn't superstitious at all, and the parts from that car were very hard to come by, and the engine was a masterpiece of design and power, and he wanted to transplant that into his own track car, which was not a Porsche, but a Lotus Mark 9. And that's a really rare, I hadn't even heard of that car myself. I had to look it up. Only about 30 of those were made, and they were formidable track cars. Although in the 1955 12 Hours of Sebring Endurance Race, and this is a race where the car has to run for 12 hours. These are very intense, these kind of races. It's like the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The Mark 9 lost to, you guessed it, a 550 Spider. So you could see why Dr. Eshrich might be interested in taking the engine from the Spider for his Lotus which after he transplanted, he called his now Porsche-powered Lotus a POTUS. The president of the United States. Yes, yes. president of the United States. But he put the engine in the front as well because the Lotus, the engine configuration was in the front. It was not in the back like it was in the 550 Spider. So he did have, Dr. Eshridge did have the engine from James Dean's little bastard in his Lotus. However, Dr. Eshridge's friend, Dr. Troy McHenry, actually had a 550 Spider himself, just like Little Bastard. Dr. McHenry was a very successful Beverly Hills orthopedic surgeon, and I got this information from page 85 of Warren Newton Beath's book, The Death of James Dean, which we've mentioned several times. Dr. McHenry had been named chief of staff by age 32 at Doctors Hospital in Los Angeles, and he was set to become the president of the American College of Osteopathic Surgeons at their annual convention just one week after this October 21st race. Unfortunately, that would never come to pass. It turns out that while Dr. Eshrich had kept the engine from Little Bastard for his Lotus, he had loaned the transaxle and rear swing arms from the car to Dr. McHenry to use in his own 550. You don't see swing arms in cars too much anymore, but at the time, the 550 had them. And for whatever reason, that day, Dr. McHenry was using the ones from Little Bastard when he was just 15 minutes into the race, and he spun out and hit a tree, and he was killed instantly. That is true. Dr. Troy McHenry died that day on the track in a car that was running parts from Little Bastard. And just briefly, I said the word transaxle. I don't want to get into a bunch of technical information here, but this is going to be important later on in this episode. A transaxle is different from a transmission. Both change gears, but a car has one or the other. Little Bastard did not have a transmission. It had a transaxle. And I wouldn't normally bother to explain this, but you'll understand why in a little bit when we find out more about that transaxle. So with Dr. Eshrich, he was running Little Bastard's engine in his Lotus, or POTUS as he called it. But October 21st was not the first time he'd driven that car. The story that you usually hear was that it was the first time the engine had gone out on the track since the accident. Not true. Dr. Eshrich had been running that engine in 13 races before that day. He'd had it in the car a long time. Some folks reported seven, eight, or nine, but we actually found the race records for both Eshrich and McHenry, and if they're accurate, then it was 13 times that his car went on the track before this accident, which was not a lockup that led to a rollover, but a wheel coming off his car. 
Well, you just said the number 13, too. Yes, so I you know. Just added I mean, your you would... own, you added your own mythos <laughs> We're adding... here with your research. Our, our myth is going to be real. It was the 13th time it had gone out. And again, it didn't lock up and roll over. A wheel came off of it. And the wheel actually seriously injured a Pomona police officer named Bob Miller. It struck him in the head and the shoulder, sending him to the hospital for x-rays. But he did live. Eshrich never lost control, though, even though that wheel came off. He was able to safely stop the car. There was no rollover, and he did not get injured. In looking at those race records, he DNF'd four of those 13 races, which means did not finish. Of the four that he didn't finish, one did not list a cause, but the other three did. One said he didn't finish due to engine trouble. One said he didn't finish due to transmission trouble, which would make sense for the Lotus because it had a transmission and not a transaxle. And the last one said that he did not finish due to an accident, which is the day the wheel came off. There were two other races he listed for, but for whatever reason, never actually raced in. So there really would have been 15 if he'd gotten to the start line for those other two. So he raced that Lotus 13 times with Dean's engine in it before a wheel eventually came off. And yes, in fact, did injure someone, but that person survived. Secondly, he also had engine trouble in one other race. But that story is lost to history. That's not one you ever hear about. We're not sure what happened. Was it spooky engine trouble or did it just break down and he didn't finish the race? That's what it said. DNF engine trouble. So should we chalk that one up to the curse? Probably not. But after the wheel came off, his next race listing shows him racing at Willow Springs in an Italian car known as a Seata. Perhaps he retired Little Bastard's engine after that day. We can't be sure. According to page six of another book on James Dean by Beeth and co-authored with Paula Wielden entitled James Dean and Death, a popular encyclopedia of a celebrity phenomenon, Dr. Eshrich said the following in an interview the day after McHenry's death. I don't believe he was using the transmission when he crashed, but he was using the back swinging arms, which holds the rear end. That's as written. That is the grammar's bad on it. But this is another case of Dr. Eshrich using the word transmission for transaxle, probably choosing the simpler term for the journalist talking to him, or maybe they changed it before they printed the story. But here's the ultimate conclusion about that day, that those two cars with little bastard parts had problems. Eshrich did have an accident, but he never lost control of the car. The wheel came off and it hurt someone, but as far as we know, that guy recovered. But in that very same race, on the very same day, Eshrich's friend, Dr. McHenry, did die. And it's possible the swing arms from Little Bastard led to his death, although that's not made clear anywhere we could find. If you believe in the curse, then Dr. McHenry is a confirmed death from it. Both of the more fictionalized accounts of these stories can be attributed to George Barris. We're going to talk about him more in a second, and specifically to a book he wrote about his own career entitled Cars of the Stars, which came out in 1974. It was republished again in the uh, mid-2000s, so there's two versions of it. There's an older version and a newer version. I, I ordered the newer version. I haven't gotten it yet because it is out of print, and it's one of those ones that takes forever to arrive. <laughs> I was hoping it would come before we did this episode. The thing about this book is with the exaggerated stories and the, the stuff that's in it, it's not all that unusual for that time period. But let's talk a little bit more about Barris, because believe me, we have plenty of paranormal books, and the ones in that realm, there's a lot of sort of, I don't know, taking creative license and puffing things up and trying to make stories. There's yellow journalism to it almost. Well, let's go into a little more detail about George Barris and who he is. And in my mind, I sometimes get him mixed up with Chuck Barris, who mm. was the host of The Gong Show, right? The, yes. And also supposedly The Secret Agent, right? There was a whole movie about that with uh, George uh, Clooney, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but this is a different show. guy. Yeah, this is a different guy. George Barris is important in this story because the rest of the curse really is very closely connected with him. And 
we've read a lot of stuff about this car. And the truth is, it's actually not entirely clear how Barris got the wreckage from Little Bastard in the first place. According to Warren Newton Beeth, he bought it from Dean's dad for 2500 But if Dean's dad collected insurance money for it, as Lee Raskin says, then the insurance company would have, as I said a minute ago, taken possession of it and sold it themselves, which is how Lee Raskin says Dr. Eshrich got a hold of the drivetrain components he bought. So it's not clear how that all works out. But no matter how Barris got it, it can't be disputed that at some point he had the wreck of Little Bastard, sans the engine and drivetrain. Now, I'm of the opinion that Beeth has a lot of the best information on Dean himself, but that maybe Lee Raskin, the Porsche historian, has more accurate information on what became of the car and the trials and tribulations of the ownership. It's a problem for me because I want to know how Barris acquired the car, and I can't really tell because Beeth says that he bought it from Dean's dad, and Raskin actually just said that he had it, but I couldn't find out how he actually acquired it. So for, I'm sure we'll get some emails on that. I'm sure there's people out there that know about that. But a little more background on Barris for those of you who have never heard of him. He was the self-proclaimed king of car customizers. He was famous for creating the original Batmobile for the 60 series, the Batmobile, and he also created the Monster Coach for the TV show, The Monsters. And in an everything is connected kind of way, The Monsters actually premiered on CBS the same week as the Adams Family in 1964, along with Bewitched, by the way. Great year for TV, right? If you're Astonishing Legends listeners. Also, you got to note, though, how long it took for the Adams Family to come out on ABC after Vampira was abandoned by them nine years earlier in 1955, which effectively killed her career. It's safe to say the Munsters was probably derivative of the Adams Family, and we know that the Adams Family was based on New Yorker cartoonist Charles Adams' works, which is something we mentioned in part one, which featured the, the matriarchal character Morticia before she was even Morticia. And that in turn was what inspired Myla Nurmi's costume for the masquerade in LA she attended that led her to being offered her own show, which is how Vampira came to be. Now, that was almost a decade before the TV show came out. So coming full circle, what we're saying here is George Barris, who wound up somehow acquiring the wreckage of Nurmi's friend James Dean's car, would also wind up custom building the iconic Munstermobile for the CBS TV show. Everything is connected. As I said before, Hollywood is actually a very small community. Yes, there are tens of thousands of people working in it, but it's not surprising that there would be those connections. You hear about those all the time with different celebrities. You know, somebody got a hold of this thing, or somebody knows that, and you wouldn't think there's a connection to them. Tommy Lee Jones was Al Gore's roommate in college. Yeah. Director David Lynch was a roommate at art school with musician Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band. Oh, right. You know, it's not that surprising. And George Barris here is a car customizer. Well, there are lots of guys doing that, but George Barris was fortunate enough to have his work showcased on television and film. So that is a tremendous amount of publicity for you. And propels you into the limelight. Yes, and the, and the other guy who was also a big deal, we did mention in part one, was Dean Jeffries. And Dean Jeffries built the Monkey Mobile, which is the craziest looking car you've ever seen for the band The Monkeys. You should look that up. That's pretty crazy. But I have to say the, monst <laughs> the Monster Mobile may be one of my favorites. It's like an 18-foot-long Model T that did 150 miles an hour or something like that. But that was a big deal. As you can see, this car customizing was a big deal back then. And and Barris was a master showman and self-promoter, and that fact's going to come into play as this part of the story continues to unfold. You didn't think that the curse ended with Dr. Eshrich and Dr. McHenry, did you? 
Most of what Barris said about his relationship with James Dean comes from his aforementioned book, Cars of the Stars. Again, originally published in 1974, republished in 2008, I think. Other parts of that came from various interviews that Barris gave over the years, and it's important to remember that some of the stories changed in different tellings. So this is where we really get down to the meat of the curse of the little bastard. From what we understand, Barris didn't have much of the car left. We already know that the valuable functioning mechanical parts have been sold off. But he had the shell of the car, which had the wheels and tires and the steering wheel still, and apparently that was all it took for this car to come to life. At one point, Barris said the car sprang alive in his shop, changing gears before crashing into a wall. When he first bought it, supposedly it fell off the truck that was going to bring it to him, crushing the legs of the person loading it up. After he got it, he decided to sort of rebuild the car, and then he was going to send it on a safety tour for the highway patrol at their request. They wanted to use it for demonstrations all over the country. And he figured this could actually be kind of lucrative for him, so he cobbled the car back together as well as he could. But by now, based on the pictures we've seen, it seems as though some of it was Little Bastard, and other parts of it maybe came from junk he had laying around his shop. Nevertheless, it kind of looked like the 550 Spider, and it went out on the road for several years. It was during this time that a wide-ranging series of events unfolded, causing multiple problems and serious injuries to a lot of people. Hi, I'm Brandon Winters, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. So Barris agrees to let the car go on this nationwide safety tour because that will probably pay for itself. It's good publicity for him in a way. And I have one question, though, before we get started on some of the aspects of the curse, Scott. I mean, yeah. we saw the photos of the accident, right? Yeah. How mangled and mashed that thing is. At least half the car is destroyed. Yes. So as we know from what should be done in accidents and that if a car is totaled, I mean, the frame's bent, it's not really safe. Right. But it can be demonstrated. It can be put on display. So it's not drivable. Not at all. Not even close. Right. Yes. Did George Barris, in your research, he never drove it around, did No, he? not at all. It was okay. never driven again. All yeah. right. That's what I thought. The mechanical components went into yeah. other cars, and they were right. driven but the body and shell of that car and the operating controls were never used right. in any effective way again. Okay, yeah, I didn't find that either, but I just want to make sure if uh, you hadn't seen it because that may answer a question to me. If you're talking about how many parts from different cars are now on Little Bastard, how much of the original Little Bastard is there? Yeah. Now, when I worked on car shows, which were large dealer meetings for automotive manufacturers here in the States, they would bring cars out. And sometimes they were prototypes and they didn't have an engine in them. Yeah. Or it was actually just a fiberglass shell or actually sometimes made out of wood. But you wanted to show the dealers what their new car was going to look like and get them all excited. They would stick a mobilator in them, which I believe was just an electric motor. So it would just go very slowly, but you could move the car. So right. my point is that if this thing was kind of driving around a little, I don't think then a lot of it would have been Little Bastard original. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So the other point I want to make is that, I don't know if they still do this, but we grew up with accident films shown in school and they were very gruesome and gory. And the point was to scare you straight into being careful to see what actually happens. Because most of us don't see that. Unless you've been in an accident yourself or you were unfortunate to witness one. It's horrifying. 
And that's the point of Little Bastard now, and that the Highway Patrol wanted to have maybe a gruesome cautionary tale and take that out on the road. And this would be meant to teach a lesson here because there was a sign in front of it that said, this accident could have been avoided. And it was kind of a macabre display. Macabre, macabre. Macabre, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but it's, it's meant to teach a lesson about reckless driving. Well, Warren Newton Beef, in his book, in the Kindle edition on page 106, states that it was in the third city of its tour on March 12th of 1959. And that's where Little Bastard is now. Good old Fresno, uh, where we had the great pleasure of meeting Bob Gimlin in person just a few months ago. But it's here, while it was in a highway patrol garage at 3158 Hamilton Avenue, when this mysterious fire broke out that burned two tires and scorched the paint on the spider. And it cost George Barris $1,000 to fix it and make it presentable, which was a lot of money to spend on a car back then. It's funny, I had a little aside here. It's that, you know, when I was a kid, if you got a fender bender, even, a, even one that like crumpled a fender or a door or something, you could give the other person like 100 or 200 bucks and it would take care of it. Yeah. That's how much cheaper bodywork repair was back then. Now it's $6,000. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's $6,000. Anyway, so a few weeks later, the car reportedly fell off its stand and crushed the legs of the teenager who was looking at it. I've heard a couple stories myself about this thing falling and crushing or injuring or breaking legs. That's another part of the story. Yeah, and there's another story that said that it crushed somebody's hips, which I think is yeah. also connected to this particular thing of it falling right. off the stand. After that, the car was being transported to none other than the city of Salinas, the town that Dean was trying to get to for the races when he was killed. Apparently, little bastard didn't want to make the trip, and the brakes locked up on the truck that was transporting it. The ensuing accident threw driver George Barrowis from the cab which even if he had survived that bit of it, he certainly did not survive the wreckage of Little Bastard breaking loose from the back of his truck and crushing him to death. On its way to Oakland for more of the tour, the remnants of the repeatedly broken wreckage split in half and fell off yet another truck, causing a near-fatal accident on a California freeway. Barris sold two of the tires to a car collector. One, or we guess both of them, blew out. Not sure how that works at the same time, I have seen that actually, but usually you're off-road. But it sent the hapless car collector into a ditch. Another story is that a thief broke into a place where it was being stored and tried to steal the steering wheel and not only failed, but cut his arm to the bone. Later in Oregon, an emergency brake failed on the truck transporting it and the truck rolls away, crashing into a storefront. But at least this time, the spider stayed on the truck. On a trip to New Orleans, while sitting stationary in its display, Little Bastard once again disintegrates, breaking into 11 pieces. And finally, according to George Barris, another man who had acquired some of the salvaged metal from the car had fallen on extremely hard times. He lost everything, his home, his wife, his kids, and finally his health. He called Barris from his deathbed, begging him to take the piece of Little Bastard he had back. Please, he begged. He was dying. So those are some of the major curse stories. And you may have heard a few of those. Like for me personally, the one I hear the most is the piece of the truck falling off and, and hurting or even killing somebody. Yeah. And that's the most Christine one too. Remember then Christine, the uh, 
the guy who owned the garage, who was kind of a, a tough nut, shall we say, and he was giving the kid a lot of problems, but then had respect for the kid because he learned how to restore that car and did a great job putting it back into its original condition. And then he sits on the front seat and he disrespects the car by flicking his cigar ash on the seat. Yeah. That? Yeah. And then the seat just moves forward and forward and forward into the steering wheel until he was crushed. Yeah. Now, if something like that had happened with Little Bastard and you come upon it the next morning and somebody is inexplicably crushed inside it, I might give more credence to a curse. But then again, that's all Hollywood. Well, those are a lot of super interesting stories. And really, all that stuff we just covered, that's the backbone of the curse associated with Little Bastard. But let's step back for a second and take a look at George Barris. From the get-go, he was exaggerating his involvement with Little Bastard. He did not do the painting on it, but he told people that he did. The numbers, and we've proven this, or I should say Lee Raskin, the Porsche historian, has proven this, that the number 130 was painted on the doors in the hood by Dean Jeffries, as was the phrase Little Bastard on the cow, on the cover of the engine in the back. So... The other thing that Jeffrey said, and a couple of friends at all pointed out, that Barris was not part of James Dean's inner circle. He was not attending races. He was not doing any modifications on Little Bastard. He never did any, even though he said that he had. As far as we can tell, there were none actually done, and it wasn't really a customized car beyond mechanically customized to be a better race car, and that was all done by Rolf Weatherick, his mechanic. So going further with Lee Raskin's research from James Dean at Speed, he said that most of Barris's stories are, frankly, outright falsehoods. The only confirmed death is Dr. Troy McHenry on that track in Pomona that day, and he was running suspension parts from Little Bastard that he had either borrowed or bought from Dr. Eshrich. And he did die. He did spin out, and his car died. As for the other stuff, there are no names or documentation. There's no evidence about the curse that is supported by fact. And you can look at even just the individual details associated with some of the individual stories. Like, for instance, the fire that supposedly happened in the patrol garage where the car was that damaged the car. That didn't happen on March 12th, as Barris said it did. It actually happened on March 11th, according to the Fresno Bee. And the same article says that the damage to the spider was minimal. Eshrich thought that with regard to the track, bad luck and standard equipment failure was the real problem. I want to come forward now to the year 1981. This is a significant year in the saga of the James Dean crash and the supposed curse of the car. In 1981, the other two people involved in the accident, Rolf Weatherick and Donald Jean Turnipseed, both died. They both died that year. Rolf had had a pretty rough life. He'd had numerous hip surgeries. He had lost his job with Porsche, even though he'd gone back to Germany. He was working with the Porsche racing team for a while, but he was really out of sorts. And in 1979, he got a job with Honda in Germany. Two years later, in July of 1981, he was driving his red Honda Civic when he crashed into a house in a small city in rural Germany. Nobody in the house was hurt, but it was a DUI, and he was badly injured. And much like that night in Shalam, he had to be extricated from the car, but he died. Pretty much exactly the same way that he almost died back in 1955. Additionally, there was one point at which Barris was saying that Rolf had been convicted of murder or something, and here's what's interesting about that. He actually, in 1967, did stab one of his wives several times while she was asleep after previously attempting suicide. 
After 14 months in jail, he was found guilty of attempted manslaughter in a court in Stuttgart in 1969, and he was ultimately sent to a psych ward instead of prison, leaving the institution in 1970. That's off Wikipedia. So it's obvious he had a pretty hard time after the accident. I'm not saying you can blame that kind of behavior on the accident, Mm -hmm. not doing any of that at all. I'm just saying his life was colorful, if not dark, for the rest of his days, and in 1981, he died the same year that Donald Jean Turnipseed died at the age of 63. No suspicious circumstances there, but it is interesting that they both passed away in the same year. Mm. Well, I wonder what 1981 has in connection to numerology. I don't know, but it was an amazing Mm. year for music. I will tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) But moving on, I did want to mention a documentary that Channel 5 produced in the UK, 2005, It was called The Day That James Dean Died, and it had some revelations about the original accident, and I want to read them here. This is from an article about the film by Olga Craig that she wrote for The Telegraph. This was published on September 25th of 2005, obviously near the anniversary of the accident. And we have a link to the article in our show notes. For James Dean fans, it has been the ultimate unsolved riddle. Just who was behind the wheel the day the actor, only 24, died? And that's not something we brought up because it's a whole nother rabbit hole, but there was some dispute over whether or not James was driving or Rolf was driving. But the accepted idea is that there was no question that James was driving based on the circumstances of the accident, the aftermath, where the bodies were found, and also the primary collision point being the biggest factor because the car killed the driver and James Dean was the one most seriously injured, and he is the one that would have made the closest and hardest impact with Turnipseed's car. However, there is one witness that maintained that day that the guy with the shirt that was driving had to be Rolf based on the color of his shirt, and he maintained that to his dying day. But there's nothing else that corroborates that. Anyway, coming back to the article, for 50 years since his death in a car crash on September 30th, 1955, Dean has been portrayed as a daredevil driver whose speeding and recklessness on the road caused his own death. Now, new evidence has emerged proving that not only was Dean driving safely, but at a much lower speed than was believed at the time. It has long been part of Hollywood lore that Dean, with his passion for fast cars and reputation for rebellious behavior, was driving his high-powered Porsche Spider 550 when he and Rolf Wetherick, a mechanic, smashed into another car on a California highway. The documentary has unearthed evidence that Dean, contrary to what was said at the inquest into his death, was traveling at just over 70 miles per hour up to 20 miles per hour slower than was claimed. It reveals also that Dean braked hard, trying to avoid the car that cut across him, rather than using the throttle to accelerate around it, as was alleged at the time. So I actually haven't seen that documentary, but I do want to see it. I only discovered it as we were finishing out the series here. Right, but I thought you had come across in your reports, and I think I did as well, that there were no skid marks behind Dean's car. That is what I've read. There were no skid marks, and I've also read that other witnesses said that they never saw taillights either, which would have meant no application of the brakes. But I would be curious to see what this documentary says. I think it's interesting. So that's something that we will definitely check into. Whatever the case, the driver thing, you know, I didn't go super far into that because personally I feel, based on everything we've read and everything I understand, that Dean was at the wheel. And yeah. With regard to the car going slower, that's something that Warren Newton Beef talked about in his book, too. It's not really clear how fast the car was going. It could have just been going 70, because that's the thing you have to think about. If it was going 70 and turnip seed was coming the other way, even at 40, that's still a 100 to 110 mile an hour collision when you combine the two cars. You have to add the speeds together when you have a head-on collision like that. 
So it's hard to say, but to your point too, Forrest, about the car not being as torn up as it should have been, I think there's two things about that. I think one is that that suggests that maybe he wasn't going as fast as everyone thought, because if he'd have been going 100 or 80 or 90, the crash would have been close to 130 or 140, 150 miles an hour maybe when the two cars collided. That may be part of the reason that the car wasn't torn up worse. And the other thing is, I think when you look at all the probably fairly conservative drivers on the road that day that he was passing, I'm sure they were all exaggerating how fast he was going when he passed them, or probably didn't have an ability to accurately judge it. You know, that whippersnapper, Pat, he was going 100 miles an hour <laughs> if it was three, you know, kind of like. <laughs> is so, everybody 80? Yeah, everyone's 80. On the highway that That's day. the way it's going. I don't know. I'm trying to give Jimmy the benefit of the doubt there a little bit. No, I believe you're right in that people's eyewitness testimony, and especially in traffic accidents, can have a lot of things wrong with it. But we just don't know. These are unknowns here. It wasn't clocked. There's no video of it. So it's, it is hard to say just based on accident evidence at the time. Well, this brings us up. We're getting near the end of the show here. We do have a few more interesting things to talk about. But one of the things that I want to talk about now is I want to turn to the idea of the disappearance of the car after it had been on tour for a while. Again, somehow George Barris had acquired the car. He had the body, not the engine and not the transaxle. But he had the body of the car, and he was the one that had sent it out on the safety tour. It started out in California, but then it wound up going all over the country. According to him, while it was being transported from Florida to California from one of its stops on this safety tour, which I think had been going on for a few years, it vanished from a boxcar. However, another time he told the story, he said it vanished from a truck. It was a locked boxcar. It was a truck. Whatever happened, it disappeared. In 2011, I guess he told that story again and said that it disappeared from New York and that he had hired an investigator, J.J. Arms, A-R-M-E-S. This is a whole aside that I definitely wanted to include. I actually watched a 37-minute YouTube video called James Dean and the Cursed Porsche, which I found through our research on a channel called Regular Cars. We're actually subscribed to it, so you can find it that way. This was a really fascinating video. The guy did a ton of research, and it's pretty impressive. It's got a couple hundred thousand views. But in this video, one of the things that he talks about is this guy, J.J. Arms, who was an investigator that I guess George Barris supposedly hired to try and find the 550 Spider. The thing about Arms is he had lost both of his hands in an accident when he was young. He was playing with some dynamite or something and rubbed a couple sticks together and they blew up and blew his hands off. So he had two hook hands. J.J. Arms had two hook hands. And he was a private investigator, but then apparently he was a very enterprising guy. He had action figures of himself, and there were all kinds of different attachments you could put on for the hook hands. I was really wanted to take a couple hours and just follow that rabbit hole, but I didn't. We uh, had to stay on point. But anyway, if you watch the video, it talks a little bit about J.J. Arms, who I, I wonder where he is now, because he seemed like quite the 70s. He seemed like a character you would see on The Six Million Dollar Man as a bad guy. I don't guy. know, but that must be a show. That has yeah. got to be. Well, yeah, if it couldn't have been an 80s private detective show. It needs to be one now. Yeah, yeah. But Arms, I guess, in his investigation, concluded that the car was stolen in Florida, and there was no evidence of it actually being loaded onto anything. I mean, that explains a few things. It could have been, who knows, maybe it was stolen in Florida. I would imagine at this point, after it's moving around all over the country, knowing how an operation like George Barris's might work, he's got a lot of cars constantly being shipped, all kinds of things are happening. He may honestly have kind of lost track of where it was and probably didn't care too much. So I, I could see it sort of disappearing and him not really knowing where it went. That to me is plausible considering how long it had been on the road. 
However, since then, there's been a lot of rumors of its discovery. And the most famous one was, again, this was in 2005, this car museum called the Volo, V-O-L-O, Auto Museum, offered a $1 million reward for James Dean's 550 Spider. No one came forward. Ten years later, on September 30th, 2015, anniversary of his death again, a man came forward and said he knew where it was. He was a little kid at the time in the 60s, and he said he saw his dad and some other men put the car behind a false wall in a building in Whatcom County, Washington. So he said the car was bricked in or put into a drywall, like in the wall mm -hmm. of the building. The only thing was there's a catch to this. There's a couple of curiosities about this. One was that the guy who had come forward said he wanted 50% of the reward up front before he would give more specific information. So that's pretty sketchy. On the other hand, he passed a polygraph test. So well, that's also pretty sketchy as we know. It is Anybody sketchy. Can. You can, well, you can, <laughs> it depends on yeah. who's giving the test. So right. I went onto some forums. I was looking into this a little bit further and on a lot of the forums, everybody was like, this is hokum, it's bunk, whatever. Mm -hmm. One guy even said, we figured out where the building was and it was torn down years before, which wouldn't that be? Kind of ironic. What if the guy was telling the truth, but then the building was unceremoniously destroyed and they didn't right. notice the wreckage in the wall? It yeah. just looked like scrap metal. So, and who knows? You could be looking at that situation. It's like the Jimmy Hoffa situation. There was a guy that came forward who said that he was responsible for Hoffa's death and that they cremated him. And that's why you're mm -hmm. never going to find him. The guy's pretty plausible, actually. And the only reason I know about this was because I was watching a press release thing about the Irishman. I guess Scorsese had maybe talked to the guy and De Niro and Pacino were both on there and they're like, we think that dude's telling the truth <laughs> about Hoffa. Mm. But mm -hmm. that's the thing about the car. It could still be sitting in some junkyard. It could be anywhere. So the lead is, I would deem it kind of partially credible, but not necessarily. However, talks broke down over the reward money. The other thing that came out during this time was that people were speculating that George Barris, you know, remember how I said, we're not really sure how he acquired the body itself. They're saying he didn't necessarily have a claim on it yeah. because he didn't have the engine. And the engine is where the claim is. So theoretically, Dr. Eshrich's family has the claim because they have the engine. We know that they have the engine. They had it in his Lotus, and there is no reason to believe that they don't still have it. And we're going to have more information on that in a second. But when all this story came out, Barris actually died just two months later, and there was no agreement ever made on the reward. And the story fizzled out. So the question is, what happened to Little Bastard? Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Allison Green. Now back to the show. This brings us to our next interesting bit of this series. As of now, there are only two items from Dean's car in the world that have known provenance. One is the engine that I just mentioned, still possessed by Dr. William Eshridge's family. The other is the transaxle. Now it all comes back. This is why I was pointing out what a transaxle was. Someone has it, and we found that someone. His name is Jack Stiles. He's a Porsche collector and the man behind the enigmatic website, jamesdean550.com. That's the numbers, 550.com. It's just one page. And it's got a picture of the transaxle and then several other pictures of the car in various situations. And then just at the bottom, it says email for information. There's no name or anything. There's a link to this in our show notes. We actually managed to get Jack on the phone for a brief interview, which we're going to roll now. But <laughs> I have to warn you something about this interview. I feel bad about this. I failed to advise him not to move about too much while he was on with us. And well, 
it sounds as though he is repeatedly opening and closing a squeaky cabinet somewhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no, you know what it is? I, my theory is that he was in a room where someone was going in and out of with a screen door. Oh, And the maybe screen so. door was squeaking. So yeah. he was stationary. Yeah, it wasn't like he was looking for a mug or a, a box of Ritz. It was, was hard for me to... <laughs> focus on it but yeah, i know get past yeah. that because like i said i don't know it was kitchen a shop maybe it was a screen door i don't know but i was so fascinated with what he was saying and i knew we wouldn't be on too long so i didn't want to interrupt him bottom line is this jack owns the original transaxle from little bastard and he's well ensconced in the mythology and the world surrounding that car to this day and what he has to say not only about the transaxle but the current status on the search for the rest of the spider and the disposition of the engine with Dr. Eshridge's family is pretty fascinating. So let's go to that interview. Firstly, I just want to thank you. So your name is Jack Stiles, correct? Correct. Okay, so I went to your website and found your webpage. It didn't have your name on there, but I did see some other websites that indicated that you were the person to be talking to about this. So I guess the first thing I wanted to do was just ask you to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners can hear about who you are. Well, my very first car was a Porsche 356, so I bought that, and I working on that, and then I went into the automotive parts business, so I ended up always working on cars, and I really kind of loved Porsches, and anything Porsche-related, I was always involved in, and at one point, a friend of mine had a Porsche Spider, and there was a spare engine, so I bought the engine, kept the engine, had it rebuilt, and I realized, well, I need a car to put it in, and so... I hunted around for a Porsche Spider, and I found one, all taken apart with no body. And when I got the car, just as I was getting the car, he said, by the way, he said, it doesn't have the correct transaxle assembly. It has an earlier one from a 550 Spider. I bought a 550A. And he said, but it's the James Dean transaxle. And he said, so you'll be able to trade it for anything you want. And so when I got the car, I realized, oh, it's not going to fit in this car. So I was trying to figure out what to do with it, and then I ended up selling the Spider because I couldn't quite afford to finish it, but I kept the transaxle all this time. So I've had the car, the transaxle for about 30 years, just waiting for the owner who has the engine and probably the title to the car to do something with it. But that has never materialized. So. Wow. So the gentleman that you bought it from, he just was like, oh, by the way, this is the one from James Dean's car. He didn't mark it up for that reason or have any desire to hang on to it? No, at that time, it was didn't matter too much. It was the improper one for the car that it was in. Right. Just actually put in this chassis to make it a roller. And at least it was a spider one. So I was kind of disappointed initially because uh-huh. it meant more work. Sure. Because now I had to find the correct one. Sure. So it was a catch-22. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, do you know where he got it from? Yes, he got it from, I think, Troy McHenry, one of the previous owners, who was also a Porsche Spider racer. Uh-huh. And back then, it was just another transaxle. They didn't really care right. where it came from. It wasn't that big of a thing. Right. So it was just another part to get your 550 on the track or running or whatever you wanted to do with it or restored. Correct. That's all it was. It was a part. Yep. So how can you be sure this is the one from James Dean's car? Well, the transaxle has a cast-in number, uh, I think it's 10046, that matches the build sheet from the factory in the 70s and 80s. And then myself, I wrote letters to the factory and had them acknowledge that this transaxle number was in chassis 
550-0055, which was the Dean Spider. Right. So it's pretty well documented, and it's been known who the owners are had been for the last 60 years. So it's pretty certain of what it is. Okay. And so is it safe to say that that means that you're the only person currently in possession of a confirmed part of his car at this time, aside from the engine, which supposedly belongs to that doctor's family? To the family, yes. Are they just not saying anything about the engine? They've just been quiet about it since he passed away? Yeah, I don't think it matters to them. I think they don't need any money or recognition or whatever, and so they're not doing anything with it. Uh huh. It was installed back in the 50s, shortly after they got it. They put it in a Lotus that the original doctor, Dr. Eschrich, drove and raced. And so the engine stayed in that car, and after he passed away, it was still there, and the family kept it that way. But recently, probably in the last, well, maybe five or seven years or so, the engine was taken out, and they sold the Lotus, which means that the engine is now free, so to speak. It's not in a car. It's sitting someplace. Have you been in touch with them? I've tried contacting them every five, ten years, and I never really wanted to talk to me or discuss anything. Oh, wow. Was a, okay. He didn't care about any of it. So okay. I just figured to stop bothering unless someone else find him. And these mechanical parts, they were separated from the wreckage pretty early on, right? Oh, yes, probably immediately. Right, Yeah. right. When Dr. Estrich bought the car, he needed the engine to put in his Lotus. And right. the transaxle went to another fellow racing and was in another car, I think probably next racing season. And that was already separated out from the body? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the accident was in 55. I'm not sure if I have seen a date of when he acquired it, but I bet it was not more than a few months after that. So probably in the 56 season, all the pieces probably came apart. Right. From the wreckage. What are your long-term plans? Are you just, at this point, especially if you can't made it up with that particular engine, you're just planning to hang on to it indefinitely? Somewhat. I mean, I want someone to do something. I really would like someone to get a hold of the family that has the engine and talk to them and see the light to do something with them, to make the two. Sure. It's really, I'd like to have the engine and the transaxle go together. Sure. And whether or not he has title to the car in California, the title is based on the engine number. Uh-huh. And so since he has the engine you would assume that he has a title to the car so he could recreate or resurrect the car right, or something like it. Right. I've had plenty of offers. I don't know how serious they are to just buy the engine, but I, after a while I realized I've hung on for it for so long that I would like to see it go together with the engine. And so basically the, my line is that if someone, I would sell it to the owner of the engine. You said engine, but you meant to buy your transaxle. Yes, I would tell, right. Right. I can see the transaxle going to whoever owns the engine. Right. And at that point, the owner doesn't care to do anything, so everything just kind of sits a little bit. Right, right. Wow, that's amazing. So do you ever take it out and show it to folks, or is it just sitting in a secure place? How are you treating this transaxle? Now it's in a secure place, but originally before, I brought it to a Porsche reunion, uh-huh. the Rensport reunions, and just displayed it. And just put a sign on it saying what it was and just watch people just see what they do. Right. And some people just look at it and not pay any attention. Other people would look at it and turn around, walk away, and then come back and read it and really realize what it was. And does it have any cosmetic damage? Uh, No. Okay. None whatsoever. Yeah, it was in the back of the car. It didn't receive any damage. Right. And obviously it was used for 
well, probably several seasons anyway, back in the late 50s. Which brings me to my next question the, about the idea of the curse. What do you know about the curse, and do you believe in that or not, and how that might relate to this particular transaxle? Well, I don't particularly believe in curses too much, so I guess I'm somewhat biased. I mean, I've heard lots of stories, and all those stories originated back in like the 50s and 60s right. of things that happened. And indeed, some of them may have happened, but not necessarily based on the car, or else people were just so nervous or anxious around it that they caused their own accidents. Sure, sure. It's sad to say. I think fortunately nothing has happened to me over 30 years. So yeah, that's good. That's good. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> so have you ever had a functioning 550 or 550A either? No, I never have. Okay. <laughs> I've owned it, but I was never able to finish the car. So right. I've never had that satisfaction of my own. I mean, I've driven friends and other cars, sure. um, but it's a rich man's sport. And I'm not the rich man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that car in particular is hard, especially hard to come by these days, I imagine. I saw where uh, Jerry Seinfeld's was priced at $6 million recently, I think. Yes. Yeah. And how about the 356? In my research, I'd found that they supposedly found it in France last year. Have you heard anything about that? Yes, I believe so. Lee Raskin, who's a lawyer and a Porsche aficionado, has written a lot of books about Dean. He had been tracking and looking for it for years. And I believe he was the one who finally determined that it was in France. Oh, wow. And first he determined which chassis number it was. Uh-huh. And then I think he finally did find it. And I believe it was in France. And do you know what's going on with that right now? Or is it just kind of under wraps? I haven't heard much about it. So I assume it's in the hands of a private citizen who keeps it very lucky and may or well, most likely I'm sure he did not know that it was the Dean Dean Speedster. Right. So I think he's probably just enjoying it as much as he can without any fans around it. Wow. That's amazing. Well, gosh, you know, it's fascinating to me that you're sitting on the only part that anyone can confirm. Do you have any idea where the body might be for his 550? I have not one clue. I mean, I've heard so many different variations. Mm -hmm. People you know, say that it was disappeared when it was coming back from a safety display in Florida. Right. And one of the stories was it was on a truck, and the other story it was on a railroad car. So right. that's a big difference there. And, and yet, from the website that I had, someone had responded and said he's positive that he saw it in the mid-60s in California. Oh, wow. Okay. On a trailer on the side of the road in front of a shop. Wow. So <laughs> there's a lot of different... <laughs> I assume that so much time has passed. There was always a situation that George Barris yes. may have had something or at least knew about it because at the time, I guess it appears that he was in control of the wrecked body portion of it. Right. And upon his passing, I thought that something might surface, but nothing did. Right. Right. There was no final admissions that I did this or I scrapped it and took the insurance money or whatever. Right, because he was the one that said it was it disappeared. It was disappeared theoretically while it was in his possession. Correct. Yeah. There's a very good chance that the Dean family may have contacted him and just asked him to either give it to them, sell it to them, or just make it disappear. Right. And so that's the one that I find most plausible. Oh, interesting. And is that just speculation, or is that something you've heard through the grapevine? No, total spec. Not total speculation. Other people have brought it up. It's just that it was going around and around for years as a safety display, and for several years after James Dean's death. And yet, it was, when it was coming back, it just disappeared. 
in a matter of a week, right? never to be seen again. So I don't think it's just by chance. I think if Barris owned it and it was like stolen, there would have been more of a situation going sure. that it just quietly disappeared. Okay. Well, I mean, that answers all the questions I wanted to ask you. Is there anything else that you want to say about it while we're on here? Not particularly. I was trying to figure when you, you called, I said, there's not much story at my end. Right. Because obviously it's way after the fact. Sure. And nothing too exciting has happened at all. Well, about a year ago, there was a rumor that the car had been found. Some very well-known Porsche people called me up and said, have you been contacted yet? And I said, about what? And he said, well, the rumor has it that the car has reappeared, is back in the country. And I said, no. I said, no one has told me. And they thought that it was presented to Jerry Seinfeld, which would be the logical choice. Right. And they said, well, they should be contacting you. And I had two other people shortly thereafter basically say the same thing. You know, they were at a a Porsche 356 registry thing, and they said, the rumor is here that you're in consultation. I said, not one person has called me up. Right. And that was a year ago, and nothing has happened. Right. So that was the closest to something that could have been, because there were a number of well-known Porsche people who were relaying the story. So usually that's higher up amongst people that don't usually spread rumors unless they really think there's some substance to it. Sure, sure. All right. Well, it's good. I did not know that story. I'm glad to get that from you. That's interesting. Yeah. I still haven't called the parties back a year later to see what was what before they wouldn't tell me too much right. about it, saying this was going to happen and nothing ever happened. So. Right. Right. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time. It was great chatting with you. And thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time today. I appreciate your calling and your interest. Well, we certainly want to thank him for his generous interview and taking the time to talk to us. We know that a lot of people don't really, as he found out himself, aren't the most forthright and want to come forward and dig all this stuff up again, especially hunting down parts that they may not care about. So it was a lot of fun to hear him talk about just the car and his interest in it. And also, I love it when a guest or somebody mentions something that connects to research we've already done. Like he talked about the transaxle actually coming from Troy McHenry. Yes. But there's something I wanted to ask you just to clarify, because uh, I think he did clear this up in the interview. He is the only known verified person with a piece of the original Spider, right? Except for the engine. Yeah, except right. for the engine. That is correct. At this time, he is it. I think there are pieces of it in some museums and private collections where people right. are like, this is the Spider. But the thing is, the mechanical components are stamped with numbers that can be cross-checked, yeah. as he said, against the build sheet for the car. Right. So you know whether or not the numbers match, which is something that, uh, especially when you're trading or collecting collector cars, you look for what they call, quote-unquote, matching numbers. It adds more value to the car because then you know you're looking at all the original components. Conversely, another thing that I've been meaning to point out in this series, and I haven't really... And this is something that I know from just being a very, very remote observer of racing and race culture. Race cars, they don't tend to stay together. They get parted out all the time. Sure. And there's a lot of famous race cars that go up for sale after they're retired. And it's super hard for the collectors to even know which car. Was this the car that won Le Mans? Well, yeah, the front left fender won Le Mans. The other one <laughs> right. was in the pit. You know, So there's all that kind of stuff happening. So it's not surprising 
how spread out Dean's car is. No, it was really interesting to hear, and I, I certainly know this from the car guys I know, is that there is zero superstition really about using parts. It's really about finding and using rare parts that you may come across than having any kind of superstitions about, ooh, this was in the, uh, you know, the fatal car crash with James Dean. Yeah. But let me ask you this before I forget. Would you find that same lack of superstition present in sailors? Or sailors on their ship would be like, I don't want that thing on my ship. That thing came off of a, uh, you know, that washed ashore. Absolutely the opposite. Sailors are yeah. extremely, <laughs> they're probably at the right. height of superstition. That's what I thought, is that yeah. they would never have anything to do with something that was even remotely talked about as a cursed ship or, no. or anything like that. They won't even rename a boat. They don't even like doing yeah. that. So, right. yeah. I just found it interesting because I think, personally, if I'm going to analyze that, it's dependent upon the sea being so much of a factor and just you're at its whim and mercy and it's and it is merciless as we've talked about before with the Mary Celeste that you're really hesitant to take any kind of chances at all yeah but with race car drivers it's like no you know what that part was hard to find I'm sticking it on my Lotus or, right or whatever race car you want to fit it into with no regard or thought about there being any kind of superstition or bad mojo with it Right. And I think a lot of times in those cases, and again, we're getting into the car tangents, but a lot of times in those mm. cases, these folks and their engineer, and especially the weekend warrior racers, they have to be their own technicians and they can get caught up in what is this thing that I can tweak? It's like if you've ever played Gran Turismo or any racing game on a platform and you get up into all that stuff about like, I'm going to get these brakes and this exhaust system and all these different things I can tweak to make my car win the race. Yeah. That is something that you can really get caught up in. And that's when the parts, they almost become an afterthought. It's just like, that'll fit. That'll fit. And it's better than the thing I've got. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Before we get into our final conclusions here, we can't move away from this topic without talking about some parallels between some other celebrities and let's just say car accidents <laughs> that seem to have some common ground. Yeah, ones involving Porsches, of course, and certainly not just with Porsches. Any sports cars that have been driven fast will most likely have been in a bunch of accidents at some point. We certainly see that here in Southern California, especially along Highway 1, where you'll get somebody driving an exotic sports car, crashing it, because that road is not made to be driven fast on, but it is a scenic route that a lot of people feel compelled to. Yeah. Same thing with Mulholland. But as we said, a lot of drivers do like the twists and turns, especially ones who like to push it. And the problem is that there are other drivers on the road who are not racing. Yeah. You, you know what else I've always heard about Mulholland yeah. too, is that supposedly there's untold numbers. I mean, not probably really high number, but numbers of crashed motorcycles just down in the canyons that if the people went out for a ride and the people are just listed as missing because nobody knows they went out for that night ride and they went off the road on Mulholland and their bike and body hasn't necessarily been found because it went down into the bushes. Yeah, I have heard that too. I was just about to say that because the brush is really thick and it's very steep. But again, those with a need for speed are drawn to the layout of Mulholland. And I remember this, speaking specifically about Porsches, I remember this guy who had purchased a Porsche. And one thing about the company is that if you contact them, like as we've seen with Rolf, they may indeed help you tune your car specifically for what you wanted to do. So he had talked with the engineers, this owner of a Porsche, about the twists and turns on Mulholland, and they tuned it specifically for that drive. Right. Not to say that he was illegally racing on it. Maybe he's a little bit over the speed limit there, but he liked to drive that course. So it's a really popular one. But the story that I wanted to touch on here was in the news, was big story back in June of 2011. 
And I remember it because it had a crisis apparition paranormal angle to it. And I always remembered it for that fact. But then later, as we're talking now about Porsches and crashes, and as you mentioned earlier, the possible inevitability of it, or the seeming inevitability about it. But this story involves someone a lot of people know from his jackass connection here, and it's Bam Margera, or if you're a skateboarding fan. And it involves the tragic car crash involving his friend, Ryan Dunn. And he was really broken up about it. And I didn't do a whole lot of digging on this, but I found a few articles, of course. And none of them mention the, what I was really looking for, which was a taped interview with Bam talking about the moment that he actually had before he officially learned about the accident from his brother. And I swear this has really happened as I remember it here, that what he described is that I believe he was on a van traveling somewhere and it was probably for the show or just with, with his group of friends. And he, for some reason, just burst out crying, just was hit with an overwhelming sadness and sense of tragedy and, and loss. And he didn't know why he said he, he couldn't figure it out. He just got really sad and he, he started sobbing uncontrollably. And it was after that, then his friend said, Hey, you need to call your brother. He's got some news for you and it's not good. And the call was about one of his best friends, Ryan Dunn crashing his own Porsche 911 GT3 into a bunch of trees one evening. And he was going way over the speed limit. There was a 100-foot-long skid tire mark there. Some reports saying that he was maybe doing close to 130. For people that don't know and maybe don't care, the GT3 is a super souped-up version of the Porsche 911. It's a race car, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. really a track car, and yeah. it's generations past Dean's 550 Spider. Yeah. So it's a supercar, and it was very tragic, but it was shown that his blood alcohol level was over the legal limit. And he unfortunately got a production assistant killed as well that was riding with him. Ugh. And the last text that Bam got was that he was going to stop by for a few beers before he met up with him. So, yeah, or a beer. But you're talking about things being inevitable. Well, if you look at this inevitability, just because of these guys, the way they drive and, and you if you know their shows, Jackass and Viva La Bam, you know what they do for fun and what they like to tape. And that behavior is going to eventually get you killed or someone else killed. And Bam Margera wasn't really surprised as broken up as he was about it because Ryan Dunn had flipped him eight times in an accident. And as Bam says, quote, he flipped me in a car eight times at that same exact spot in 1996. He recalls, thank God I had my seatbelts on because Chris Robb put one on me, but my brother didn't have one on. He flew 40 feet. Thank God he's alive. But like Dunn was always a manic at driving. Yeesh. But if you do that long enough, you're going to meet with an accident. Yeah. And that's what the other weird thing is that, yeah, if he flipped him eight times in that same exact spot and then it happened. And then there was this kind of a crisis apparition moment where the shock of that accident had reached out to Bam in that moment. He didn't even know why. Yeah. And I'll tell you what else. If you look at the pictures of the crashed car, of Ryan's GT3 or whatever, it's, it is mangled beyond recognition. Yeah. I mean, it does evoke images of Little Bastard, but it's right. in a lot of ways, it's actually much, much worse. Exactly. And just think about a car traveling 130 miles an hour, much faster than I've ever gone in a sports car, and hitting something as unmovable as a tree. But here's something else that Margera had said, I believe, in a DVD commentary for season five of their MTV reality show. Quote, he's going to eat it one of these times in a car accident, adding he'll never learn his lesson. So 
another cast member had also joked, I have Ryan in the death pool for death by vehicle. Yeah. So that doesn't seem to be the case, though, with, with Dean. He was much more serious about driving, although, yeah, of course he pushes a little fast, but it didn't seem to be really the case of the part of the legend that people have come to know that he was way over the speed limit and he was being reckless. He was really testing the car out before he was going to race it. But yeah, he may have been going over the speed limit, but certainly not in a situation like this where it's a different kind of inevitable. Well, we can't get into the conclusions without, of course, mentioning Paul Walker, which people would talk about emails if we didn't bring up Paul Walker. For those of you that don't know him, he was the star of the Fast and the Furious franchise for years, many, many of the movies, and he'd been in several other films as well. He died a few years ago in a very similar accident in a 911 Carrera GT, which is a incredibly expensive car. It was only built a few years. Less than 1,300 of them were built from 2004 to 2007. The current used ones are going for just under a million dollars or $900,000. And Paul Walker had one because he had done very well. And I guess if you look at the common ground with James Dean, because a lot of people say, oh, it's just like James Dean. Well, yeah, they were both movie stars. They both had expensive high-end Porsches. They both loved fast cars, and they both died pretty much immediately in their respective accidents. But for me, that's where the similarities end. Walker was a great performer. He's a charismatic, a really good actor. I enjoyed him in most of the movies I saw him in. But he's very different from James Dean, and he had already been in a ton of movies by the time he died. Dean had only been in three, and they hadn't even all come out yet. So... Again, it was the Fast and the Furious franchise, which put Paul Walker out in front of everybody so many times. And that was a series of movies, well, about street racing. And the other part of the story that's different is that Dean hit another car. Walker's Carrera hit a pole. And the cause of Walker's accident is still kind of undetermined. But some think that actually came off the ground at a small rise in the road and an airborne car cannot be controlled. So regardless of the speed... I think the worst thing about that accident was that it was a fiery accident, and mm-hmm. uh, reportedly they were still alive at the outset of the collision, but the fire is what did the man, and when I say them, he had a friend in the car as well. So that's interesting in a way, but it's there's some small measure of uncanniness, I guess, in the similarities, but I don't think there's necessarily a cosmic connection between those two accidents. I think it was a product of youth, fame, wealth, access, and inexperience, maybe. Both men had all of those things, although Walker probably actually had spent a lot more time driving at high speeds than than Dean had. But I feel like Walker's energy and personality are are radically different from Dean's. So I don't personally, aside from the car and the type of car, I don't really see a connection between the two, in my opinion. I agree, and I think the connection, though, is guys who love to race cars and they love cars and they love speed and action and excitement, much like Bam Margera, and it's a sports car that people do love because Margera also crashed his own silver Porsche, I believe, just shortly after his own friend crashed and died, Ryan Dunn. And that just happens. I don't think that accident was necessarily his fault. I believe a truck made a wide turn and maybe he smashed into it. But again, these guys are going to buy fast cars. And so it's not that much of a strange coincidence to me. Yeah. Well, we're about to go over our final conclusions about the story, about the curse of Little Bastard and what happened to James Dean. After our conclusions, we're going to take you out with a public service announcement of sorts. This predates PSAs, really, but it's an announcement type of interview sort of thing that James Dean did really just before he died about 
being a safe driver. We have the audio from that. We're going to run it at the end of the show. Forrest, uh, you had done a little background on this piece, right? I, I watched it. Yes, yeah, that's the, <laughs> the background I, I did. On it. Cursory but research makes a return. Talk about words to go out on. It's just one more example of a very chilling premonitory statement in this whole life of, but coming from James Dean himself. And it's on record, of course, on YouTube. You can find several clips, some of uh, varying qualities and some longer than the others, because what it actually is, is a series called Behind the Cameras. And I believe it was produced by Warner Brothers to act as promotional pieces for their films upcoming and the ones that may already have been out in the theater. And it's really kind of an early version of BTS, Behind the Scenes, where you, you might get that on a DVD now. But these were shown at the theater between movies. And so it'd be, you know, between your newsreels and your cartoons, they might run this if the theater was showing other Warner Brothers movies. And it's a little look behind the scenes and a talk with some of your favorite actors. And in this case, it's Gig Young asking James Dean a few questions Obviously, you know, we've just seen James come off the set of Giant, where he's filming this now, and you may have liked Rebel Without a Cause, and here's the reasons why some behind-the-scenes stuff and comments from the story executive who put this together, and yeah, it's kind of a pseudo-interview, as you'll see, because it looks pretty staged, but it's interesting in that you get real James Dean off-camera. Yeah, and I actually hadn't heard of him. That was a new guy to me, but... Oh, Gig Young? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's been in a ton of stuff. Well, I guess he was in some Sam Peckinpah films yeah. and had done a lot of stuff, and I did recognize him, but I didn't know him by his name. Well, there's one spooky movie, kind of a weird movie, that our fans may know, and it's called The Shuttered Room, and that starred also a young Oliver Reed. Yeah. As I think it may have been his first movie role. Oh, wow. But Gig Young is in it, and it's kind of fun. He's uh, He plays kind of a suave, sophisticated guy on vacation with his newlywed wife, Carol Lindley, the actress, and uh, they go to this small, really weird New England island, and they have to deal with some weird locals. But anyway, yes, he's a well-known actor of the past era, but in this case, he looks like every man handsome guy. Well, yeah, and actually, he met a pretty tragic end. He succumbed to alcoholism. It gotten so bad, he was actually supposed to be in Blazing Saddles, but on the first uh. day... He had to withdraw because of he was drinking and he was fired by Mel Brooks. Mm. He also, for a while, was married to Elizabeth Montgomery, believe it or not, which connects mm. back to Bewitched, which mm -hmm. also connects full circle to everything else in that small circle of Hollywood. But finally, with his last wife, is actually his fifth wife, he killed her. It was a murder-suicide mm. in Manhattan. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, that's how that wrapped up. Sort of a sad ending for him. But anyway, we will be going to that clip at the end of the show tonight, so you'll be listening for that and be listening to what James Dean has to say about road safety. Right. Well, here's one piece of that, because again, it, it is a promotional piece, really, for the upcoming film Giant, which they show him in his Texas rancher garb, James Dean. But what's really interesting here is the last lines that you see him say in the clip, in that part of the legend here and part of the lore was that the written line for James to say in the script was going to be, take it easy driving, the life you save might be your own. But at the last moment, as he's leaving the set, he ad-libs the line to say, take it easy driving, the life you might save might be mine. So then you got to wonder, is this part of his premonition that he was going to meet his end someday on the road. Yeah, and not only that, it's pretty safe to say, even though Turnipseed was not found at fault, that whether Dean was speeding or not, Turnipseed turned in front of him. So yeah. 
the life that Dean lost was due to the actions of another driver, I think as much as, if not more than what he was doing in that particular right. instance, aside from the fact that right. he'd been speeding all day long. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, yeah. that's part of the other aspect of the interview because Gig Young is getting to the point where like, well, how fast does your car go? And have you been in any drag races? And and you, you just race on the track, right? And that's what James Dean is saying is that people racing on the track, they know what they're doing. These guys practice this, but people out on the street, you don't know what they're going to do. And that's another thing is that they could turn in front of you. They might do something unexpected. You have to go off their whims and their skill. And that's what he was getting at in this clip. So it's, it is pretty chilling. Well, as we're concluding here, of course, the paranormal angle would be the discussion of a curse, that possibility at all. And I just want to know, Scott, what do you think about it? Well, I got to tell you, I fall in line with Lee Raskin's research, Porsche historian Lee Raskin, who also wrote the book James Dean at Speed. I think that George Barris probably exaggerated 90% of the stories about Little Bastard. Raskin says the only real confirmed death, as we said this earlier, associated with parts from the car is Dr. McHenry, who spun out and hit the tree on that track in Pomona while driving with those suspension components that were salvaged from Dean's 550. All the other stories kind of fall short. In fact, the garage fire was, as we said, proven to have happened on a different date entirely. No records of the man supposedly killed in the tractor-trailer accident could be found by Raskin either. No accident report, no articles, and no records connecting other injured people to the car either. There were none from it falling off displays and injuring people or any other kind. I'm sure it did that at least once or twice. It's moving all over the country, and it's kind of a janky setup. It's definitely going to fall off the display, but did it maim people? I, I don't know. So I think all these stories just added to the mythos of the car and the stories around it. And you heard what Jack Stiles had to say about why he thinks it disappeared. That was something that I hadn't heard. I thought it was pretty interesting about you know, he said that maybe the Dean family contacted Barris and said, you need to make this go away. It's disrespectful. Mm -hmm. There's, it does no reason for it to keep being out there. And maybe they bought it or maybe Barris just said, fine, I'm going to crush it and we're going to take it off the market. Barris did some amazing car customizing work to be sure, but so did Dean Jeffries. And we now know Jeffries is the one who did the stencil work on Little Bastard. Barris actually kind of reminds me, Forrest, of Philip Morris, the late owner of <laughs> yes. Philip Morris Costumes in North Carolina, mm -hmm. who claimed to have made the costume that someone wore for Patty in the Patterson-Gimlin film. You can't ask for better publicity than to say that or to say, hey, I modified Little Bastard for James Dean. So when it comes to the curse, this is what I think. I think everyone is looking in the wrong place for the curse in this story. I don't think the car was cursed at all. You can't really track down any stories that prove that it was. And Dr. McHenry's crash in Pomona as well as Dr. Esrich's, can both be chalked up to the pretty standard dangers of weekend racing. What do you think, Forrest? Where are you come down on all this stuff? I tend to totally agree with this, because as we said before we started here, I would say you're starting with a very likely data set. It's not like what I jokingly mentioned earlier in that it's like Christine, where people are dying unexpectedly. Yeah. And you got to wonder. You're talking about a race car. Race car drivers, even the best, all of the best at some point have probably crashed. That's just the dangers of racing. So it's really hard to look at, well, there you go. A part that came from Little Bastard was put in another car and that crashed. It's like, well, that was pretty likely going to happen anyway at some point. That's just the nature of racing. So that alone makes you suspect about all these stories. And I totally agree. Not to say that George Barris was purposely lying to pump up anything, but he just sounds like a character. He sounds like a larger than life guy. And 
we've all met guys that have great stories and they're a lot of fun to be around and you don't know what happened. And and I think that, yeah, in a nice gesture, he may have just kind of disappeared the car out of respect or a request from the Dean family. Like, it's just so painful to see this thing being paraded around, even though it's for a good cause as a cautionary tale. At your next chance, just kind of make it go away. And he may have done that. That's very likely to me as well. So yeah, as far as all these stories, it's just kind of fun. It adds to the lore. It's a little spooky. But I don't think that there's anything substantial to it. And what's interesting to me, too, was what Jack said about a year ago about these rumors floating around that it had turned Mm -hmm. up. And I thought he was going to be talking about the Volo million dollar reward, but he's talking about very recently. And he was making an assumption that maybe it was going to go to Jerry Seinfeld. I have to wonder, I've never met Jerry Seinfeld. I don't know anything about him, uh, you know, and I don't even watch comedians in cars with coffee because I don't have time (laughs) because we're always working on our show. But I don't know how superstitious he is. Even if you found that car and him being kind of the consummate Porsche guy with his, you know, million dollar collection, he has a 550 Spider that either sold or is for sale for $6 million. Mm-hmm. My question would be, would he want to take possession of it? If it did turn up or would he be nervous about it? Would he have fear for life and limb and what might happen to him? I would say that if he listened to these two episodes, uh, maybe that would take the fear away and he would he would go ahead and get it. The other thing that Jack told me, uh, we weren't recording, but the other thing that he told me towards the end of our phone call when I was actually signing off with him off the air was that he thought it would be worth at least tens of millions, if not more, yeah. for the actual car, which isn't even a car anymore. It's just a beat up right. piece of metal yeah. with stuff on it that probably was never on it in the first place that Barris added while it was on the road. On its tour, I mean, you know. Exactly. Look, I, I think for guys like Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno, they love to collect these cars, and they also like to drive them. And if you look at what Little Bastard is now, it's a heaping wreck. And what are you going to do with that? Really, it's something that you would put on display. So it also made me think of the casino. Have you ever heard of Whiskey Pete's? Yeah. It's in Prim, Nevada, on the way to Vegas, if you're heading out from L.A., and I stopped by once, or it was on the way back. You kind of want to wind down from a Vegas weekend on your drive back, so I stopped by Whiskey Pete's, and I looked at Bonnie and Clyde's shot-up car. Oh, yeah. And I believe at that time, they also had Dillinger's car, maybe? Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a macabre factor of seeing the car that got shot up by the police in a big shootout. And I believe maybe there's even some blood stains in it. And so there is a looky-loo factor to that. And yeah, we love history and American outlaws, and that's all kind of fun. But that's what you do with a car like that. You have to put it on display. Yeah. It would be weird to fix that up and drive it around again. But people do weird things, especially car collectors and and people of that ilk. But you do wonder, what would they do with it? You have to put it on display. and, And what would be the purpose then? of just another museum piece. Yeah, and I think from an investment standpoint, it comes back around to what Jack was saying about, and what he said makes the most sense, actually. The Esrich family releases the engine or says, hey, we're going to put this into another fully functioning 550 body and chassis. If you will hand over the transaxle, at that point, you have the best drivable recreation of Little Bastard. You would have the original engine and you would have the transaxle from James Dean's car. That's a car I might legitimately be nervous about driving, (laughs) to be honest. The engine is the heart of the car, you know, and you would be transplanting the heart into another 550 Spider. And that also, from a collector standpoint and an auction, you watch these auctions on TV, that would be quite something to watch, even if it was a completely different body and chassis, but to watch a 550 roll up in front of the auction gavel and know that its engine and drivetrain 
was out of Little Bastard, that would be quite a thing. I can't even imagine where the bidding would go for that. Well, that would be interesting, but again, there are other examples where you have more of a car of a historical nature or was involved in a historical act, involved with famous people, and Little Bastard would be less of that, but it would be still something for car aficionados. I would say maybe less to the general public because they don't see beyond the skin of the car yeah, and the chassis. They will say, well, all right, so it's got this from this uh, famous uh, car from this guy who is a famous but old-time actor. Like, okay, well, that's interesting. But more so, yes, with the auto-collecting set, it would be something. But getting back to the intangible aspect of this, do you think that there may have been some kind of a curse or something paranormal at all with this story? Actually, I do. I think there is a curse in this story but I don't think it has anything to do with the car. I think it had to do with James Dean. And I don't think that Myla Nurmi had anything to do with it either. I think she was playing a part, like we talked about earlier. I do think the gossip rags in Hollywood at the time ate that up. And I think that both she and Dean were, like Barris, amazing self-promoters. All TV was local back then. There was no internet. And if you were on the rise and wanted to be nationally or internationally famous, you only had movies which were very hard to get into, and what people read about you in the press. You better believe those two both knew how to tease the papers and make people talk. Now, I think the real part of the curse in this story was that darkness that hung over James Dean since long, long before he ever came to Hollywood. The real curse was the one that seemed to make his death at that lonely intersection in Shalam inevitable. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Giggs. We asked Jimmy over today because he's a racing man himself. A real one, not a crazy one. Incidentally, I think I should explain that Jimmy just stepped over from the set of Giant. And need I add, he plays a Texan. But speaking of racing, have you ever been in a drag race? Are you kidding me? I just thought I'd ask. No, Jim races in the tradition, you might say. Real racing cars, real tracks. How fast will your car go? Oh, an honest miles an hour. Clocked at runabout. 106, 7. You've won a few races, haven't you? Oh, one or two. Where? Well, I showed pretty good at Palm Springs. I ran a Bakersfield. Jimmy, we probably have a great many young people watching our show tonight, and for their benefit, I'd like your opinion about fast driving on the highway. Do you think it's a good idea? A good point. I, uh, I used to fly around quite a bit, you know. Took a lot of unnecessary chances on the highways. And I started racing. And uh, now I drive on the highways and I'm uh, extra cautious. Because uh, no one knows what they're doing half the time. You don't know what this guy's going to do with that one. On a track, there are a lot of men who spend a lot of time developing rules and uh, ways of safety. And. Uh, I find myself being very cautious on the highway. I don't have the urge to, to speed on the highway. People say racing is dangerous, but I'll take my chances on the track any day than on a highway. Well, Gig, I think I'd better take off. Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. Um, one more question. Do you have any special advice for the young people who drive? Take it easy driving. The life you might save might be mine. You know? <laughs>
That's going to wrap up our series on Little Bastard. We'll be back next week with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Becca Blakely. N-O-R-A. I'm Brandon Winters. Galaxy Wide. In perpetuity. And when I'm not listening to Astonishing Legends. Scouting Forest advise you to run. I understand this is with no implied promise of Fort Worth, Texas. I'm wishing Scott Philbrook was my mentor and Forrest Burgess was my dad. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.